0: If you have a Bible, you can meet me in Revelation chapter 1, and we have uh, been in our series that we just started last week, and we will be here for the next little while, that we've called Apocalypse Now. We are walking through the book of Revelation, and as we talked about in our intro week last week, and if you miss any weeks, by the way, you can catch up. Everything will be on YouTube and on our audio podcast. Uh, Apocalypse, in the biblical sense, just means revelation. It doesn't mean disaster or catastrophe or end of the world. It means revelation, and so... We are digging into Revelation now. We are digging into what God's text says and what does that mean for us. And uh, and as we do, just uh, as a sidebar for a minute here, um, we are still in the process of figuring out uh, how our groups can work right now at church. We are limited to groups of 10, and we can gather together in groups of 10 for religious service, for Bible study, for prayer, or whatever that may be. And so we have had a number of people who said, yes, we would like to be connected in some way. And when we were originally trying to figure it all out, we were under the impression from the literature that was there that we could potentially have multiple groups happening in the church as long as they never met. So we could have one group in the sanctuary, another group down in the cafe, and there would be no interaction at all. Everyone would be safe. And then just as rules were clarified and as things happened, we realized that we couldn't do that, that that was not allowed under the restrictions at the moment. So we're limited to one group of 10 in the building, period, at a time, which is way harder when you're trying to get a whole bunch of groups through in any given week, and so we appreciate your patience as we work through it. Our hope is that uh, by the end of this week, we will have our plans in place, and uh, Pastor Sarah and her awesome kids team is figuring out how to get our kids together for some uh, Bible and prayer time together and some connection time, and we're trying to get adult groups figured out, and we are also trying to get our youth figured out, and so the youth actually started on Thursday, uh, and so because we can only do one group at a time, they had two groups come in that night at different times, staggered, and uh, kudos to Pastor Xavier and his awesome leaders for uh, pulling all of that off. So junior highs were here on Thursday night for the first time in a long time, and that was great, and we followed all the rules, and everybody was safe. And so we are figuring it out, and we appreciate your patience. And we are just going to ask, uh, I think most of these groups are going to end up meeting maybe every other week rather than every week, and, and every group uh, is probably going to have to give a little bit just as we figure out all the moving pieces of this. So if everyone can just be cool, that's just going to be the phrase, just be cool. Come on, guys, just be cool. Uh, Help us figure this stuff out and be patient with us as we do. And we really are working hard to try and make all of these moving pieces come together. So, as we uh, are going to continue through Revelation this morning, the Word of God says that all Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, for encouraging, for rebuking, for correcting, uh, so that the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that is our question as we approach Revelation, is how is this useful for us? How is this pointing us to Jesus? How is this showing us more about what our walk is to be? How is it calling us forward into holiness, into mission, into obedience, and all of these things? And so uh, we started with the first three verses last week, which is a bit of a prologue, a bit of an introduction to the book. Uh, we noticed that noted that it starts off by saying this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. This is how the book begins. This is the apocalypse, the apocalypto in the Greek, of Jesus Christ. This is the thing that Jesus is revealing to his church. And uh, we are going to continue on starting in verse 4 today. And we're going to get into the authorship a little bit today. And so maybe you have been to an event or you've certainly seen events where you have an opportunity to meet the author. And so uh, you sometimes authors will show up at a bookstore for a book signing or they'll have a talk or something. We have a friend uh, named Kara who has written a couple of kids books. She lives up in Windsor and pretty regularly Kara will do something at a library or at chapters where people can come and meet her and she can answer questions about writing the book and she can sign and she can take pictures. And so there's kind of meet the author events. I've had the privilege uh, just through my schooling of getting to meet actually several authors that I really admire because they've written books that are being taught in seminary and they would come and they would teach the course, and so there was one in particular where I was so excited to meet the author, and uh, he wrote a book that had just changed my life, and then he was going to come and teach for a week at the seminary, and I was going to get to spend a week under his teaching, and I was so excited, and I'd followed the ministry for years, and I was really looking forward to just getting to know him better and spending some time with him, and um, I'm not saying I thought we were actually going to become best friends, but part of me was kind of hoping that we would just probably become best friends through it, and this person who I admire, and uh, and as I went through the course with him, we didn't become best friends. Uh, that part didn't end up happening, but It was really cool just to spend a week sitting in a class with him and just hearing his heart and hearing his teaching and just a very humble and and very good man uh, who just loves Jesus so much. And it just oozed out of him. It just poured out of everything he said and did. And so it's really cool when you actually get to have that experience of just hear someone you admire and you actually get to know them and get to to get a sense of them a little bit better. And so that's what the next few verses are going to do for us in Revelation. We're not meeting uh, in person, obviously, but we are going to get to meet John for the first time, who is the author of the book of Revelation. But also, as we talked about last week, John is not really the author of the book of Revelation. As John would make clear, John basically says, I'm just writing down what I saw. I'm writing down what was told to me, what I heard, uh, what I saw in the vision. So, John is sort of acting as a scribe as Jesus Christ brings the revelation forward. And we're going to get to know Jesus better through these verses today as well. So, let's take a look at our text. We're in John chapter 1, and we are starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we are getting to see both our authors now in these verses. One is John, who is the human being who is writing these things down. But as we talked about last week, Jesus is the one really doing the talking. And so John is writing down everything he sees and everything he hears. And so as we talked about last week as well, uh, Revelation 1-4, as it starts off, it starts off with the word John. And that seems backwards to us because in the way we write things, if you're writing an email or if you're writing a card or if you're writing a letter, you start off with who you're writing to. The first thing you write is, hey, to Meadowbrook Church. If I'm writing a letter to you guys or to whoever you're writing the birthday card to, you put their name first. You put your own name at the bottom. You sign your salutation at the end saying this came from Chris. But it is the exact opposite in ancient letters. And so when we read in the New Testament, when basically any letter starts, it typically starts with here's the person who's writing it. And so the person who's writing it here is John. And then next we have who's he writing it to he is writing this to the seven churches in the province of Asia so this is a pretty typical way for an ancient letter to kick off and so we learn that the human who is writing things down is John and traditionally this has been understood to be the apostle John uh, the one who walked with Jesus the apostle of the early church This has been John the Apostle. Now, there is a fair amount of debate about whether John, in fact, is the same John who walked with Jesus. And so scholars really like to dig into the language of things, and they dig into the phrases and the spelling of certain words. And so what some scholars have looked at, and which isn't maybe even that hard for us to question, if we know the Gospel of John, say, and we know the letter of 1 John, and we look at the book of Revelation, where they say, Revelation just reads really different. And I mean, It's a very different kind of book. But, you know, 1 John and the Gospel of John, written by the apostles, uh, have a lot of similarities. They use similar type imagery, phrasing, and things like that. Revelation is just very different. And so some scholars think it must have been a different John who was writing, and and that there was obviously maybe another John who was a a pillar of the early church, who has a prophetic gift, obviously, and who was respected, and who had some authority to speak to churches. And if you want to dig into that, you can. Uh, You know, even just look it up on Wikipedia to get you started on some of the viewpoints. We are not going to dig too far into that. Uh, one, I'm not an expert in it. And two, it ultimately doesn't really matter uh, in terms of what we are going to get out of Revelation. So for our intents and purposes, we're going to hold on to the Apostle John as the author. I don't know for sure if that is the case, but um, but it really doesn't matter for what we're doing here. But anytime we're engaging in Bible study, it helps us to know a little bit about who's writing, right? Who is the person who is writing? Paul writes with a certain perspective, and John writes with a different perspective. Perspective and Peter writes with a different perspective, and James writes with a different perspective. So, in any good Bible study, we want to say who's talking, who is the one who is writing, and then we also want to look at who are they writing to, who is the audience, who was receiving this for the first time, and what would the word have meant to them. And so, we find in our first verse that this letter is coming to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So, these are churches we're going to get to know very well in the weeks to come. We're going to take a week to focus on each of them, but these were seven. Seven real churches that met in seven real cities in the province of what was called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And these were not the only churches in the area, obviously, but these are seven churches that the letter is coming to. They're all going through things, as we're going to see in the weeks to come. And so the letter comes ultimately as a word of hope and encouragement to them. But it also should not be considered that the letter was only meant for them. Because the Bible really, really, really loves the number seven. And we're going to see the number seven lots in the book of Revelation. And whenever you see a seven in Scripture, it can mean just seven, like the numerical number seven, a literal number seven. But we understand that the number seven in Scripture is often used symbolically to mean just the fullness of or the complete amount Uh, It's meant to symbolize the fullness. And so uh, sometimes when a seven is used, it just means symbolically they're just saying "That's, that's everybody or everything. or or all-encompassing, or completion, or fulfillment, or perfection. Uh, So it is a very symbolic number that they use in Scripture. We're going to see it even in the the verses to come that we read today. And so whenever you see a seven in the Bible, it, again, could mean a literal seven, uh, could just mean everybody or everything. And so it's probably best to understand that even though this letter came to seven specific churches, it's not just limited to them. And even the language that Revelation uses, uh, there's a phrase that's going to come up. He who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church is. Plural, not just one church, not just uh, one message for one group in one city, but there's a message here that was meant to go beyond that. And so what probably has happened is that John has written a letter to seven churches, but these were all big churches in big cities, and they were probably meant to share it with the surrounding areas, and so it's a message to the church. It shouldn't be considered to be this only applied to those seven and has nothing left to say to the rest of us. It's meant for all the churches to read, including, of course, us today. Moving on in our text, verse 1, 4, B, and 5. Grace and peace to you. Uh, Often letters in the New Testament start with a blessing like that. There's just a, a wish of God's grace and God's peace to be upon you. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so this is really the author, that we're meeting as we go through revelation Uh, we know a little bit about john obviously john is is a respected leader in the church Uh, we're going to learn that he is persecuted and he is in a time of punishment on the isle of patmos we'll get into that next week Uh, so he is suffering and struggling for the gospel and we don't know a ton other than that that we're going to learn from the book of revelation but really it's jesus who's doing the talking and jesus is where we should be putting most of our attention and and even just talking with Ben uh, here right before the service, and Ben just said Revelation has so much beautiful Christology. Just it's so beautiful how we learn about Jesus through this book and the the terms and phrases that are used to help us understand who He is. And so, grace and peace to you. There is a blessing of God's grace and God's peace to those who are reading this letter from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before His throne and from Jesus Christ. Uh, he's talking about Father and Spirit and. Son, which we'll get into. But the phrase, the one who is and who was and who is to come, pointing to the eternal nature of who our God is, uh, it, it reminds us a bit of Exodus 3.14, where Moses encounters God at the burning bush. And Moses says to God, what is your name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And it's not great grammar. It's not great, uh, you know, easy to understand. There's a bit of mystery in that title. But when God is asked, what's your name? God says, I am. That's my name. And, And when you try to sort of pigeonhole God to like, God is just like this or God is just like that. God, what's your name? How do we sort of nail you down to something? And God's response is, I am. I exist. And I always have and I always will. The one who is, and who was, and who is to come. The one who is currently God. The one who has always been God. The one who has always existed. And the one who always will exist. Who is, and who was, and who is to come. That phrase, that term to describe our Heavenly Father will show up a few times in Revelation. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. It's unique to this book. But the God who is and who was and who is to come, the God who is I am, the God who exists and always has and always will, that's who he is. And so that's also our question if you've ever been, uh, you know, questioned by someone who, who maybe doesn't know the Lord or someone who's given you a hard time about, you know, oh, you believe in creation. Well, if you believe that this started then and the universe started then, what started God, right? Where did God come from? Who created him? You've ever had that question asked before And our response, which might not be intellectually satisfying to them, but it is the truth and it is the word of God, is we don't believe God started to exist at any point. We don't believe he had a starting point. I don't have to give an answer for how did God begin because he didn't begin. We don't believe he had a starting point. We believe he has always been the God who is and who was and who is to come. So that is the father sitting on the throne. And then there is also this next phrase, also grace and peace from the seven spirits before his throne. And you might have a little uh, text note at your bottom, at the bottom of your page, uh, a little footnote there, or your version might even say, uh, from the sevenfold spirit, capital S, before his throne. And I think that second phrase is really what it's getting at. Not that there are literally seven spirits, but there's that number seven again, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. And so I think the better interpretation is from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And that points us to Isaiah 11 too. And as we go through Revelation, you're going to see almost everything, almost everything in Revelation ties back to the Old Testament in some way. Almost all of the imagery, a lot of the phrases like this one, they all have an Old Testament connection. And so as we go back to the Old Testament and, and find the context that's being referred to, that can help us understand what John is trying to get us to understand. And so Isaiah eleven two is talking about the Messiah to come. This is before Jesus walks the earth and the Messiah is going to come and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel "...and of might, the spirit of the knowledge..." And fear of the Lord. And so there are seven titles for the Holy Spirit in that phrase. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel, the Spirit of Might, the Spirit of the Knowledge of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. These are all different aspects of who the Holy Spirit is. Now, I imagine there are probably infinite things you could say about who the Holy Spirit is, because the Holy Spirit is God. And so he is not limited to only seven things or only seven titles but again there's that number seven again and so isaiah eleven two has seven titles for the holy spirit that are just meant to suggest that number seven that this is the complete holy spirit this is the fullness of god can you say more things about him of course you can but the idea of the sevenfold spirit before his throne is this is the holy spirit who is perfect He is complete entirely. The fullness of God is there. And we would push back strongly against any theology about the Holy Spirit that suggests that he is somehow less than. People say stuff about the Holy Spirit like he is a gentleman. They say he is in the background, like he is like the quiet member of the Trinity. And my response to that is, are you nuts? Have you read your Bible? Have you read the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit is not a gentleman. The Holy Spirit is not just kind of quiet in the background. The Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is front and center. He's shaking buildings. He's releasing languages and prophecies. He's performing miracles. He's striking down liars. He is moving with power. And he is doing it, yes, to point to Jesus and to highlight the gospel. But we would push back against anything that suggests the Holy Spirit is somehow this lesser member of the Trinity or background member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And the seven attributes that Isaiah talks about just point to the fact that he is fully and completely God. He is fully complete, he is perfect, he is perfectly God. So grace and peace from the Father, who is and was and who is to come. Grace and peace from the Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit before God's throne. And then grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so Father, Spirit and Son are all involved in this initial greeting. The whole Trinity is there bringing grace and peace to the church. And so Jesus is first called the faithful witness and it's just all oh, we talked about his faithfulness and sang about it this morning, the faithfulness of God, the one who does not change, the one who does not give up, the one who does not back off, the faithful one and not just the faithful one, but the faithful witness because Jesus Jesus came and walked among us, and as he walked among us, he suffered alongside us. Jesus knows what death feels like, and Jesus knows what resurrection feels like. Jesus knows what it's like to live this life, a man of sorrows, on this earth. Jesus knows what it is to persevere through trials. Jesus knows what it is to bear pain in your body and pain in your soul. Jesus knows what it feels like to feel the Father turn away. There's, just, there's nothing that you have gone through that Jesus is not personally witnessed to. And the Greek word for witness there suggests a personal eyewitness, like someone who has been there, someone who has done that. And whatever you are facing in life, Jesus has been there personally, and he has been faithful the entire time. He's our witness in suffering. He is our witness in perseverance. He is our witness even in death. And then he is the witness to resurrection. He is witness to life on the other side, the firstborn from the dead. And firstborn is not just because he was the first one to die and raise again and ascend to heaven and then achieve uh, glory from God in that way, but firstborn in the sense of the honorific title from an ancient culture where firstborn was a special spot. Uh, you were the head of the family if you were the firstborn. Once your dad died, you took over as head of the family. You got a double portion of the inheritance. Your siblings would have to follow your lead. You were the new head. And so Jesus is the title. Uh, the title here is given, not just firstborn in that he was the first one, but the title of firstborn, the title of his his father, the head now of this family, and then the ruler of the kings of the earth. And a lot of revelation has to do with Jesus being in conflict with the rulers, the kings of the earth, Uh, those who are in authority, who refuse to acknowledge Jesus, who uh, fight back and rebel against him. And it's just made crystal clear, we knew this already, that Jesus is over all of it. That Jesus is over every king, that Jesus is over every ruler, that Jesus is not worried about them, and that although we can be very much affected by the kings and rulers of this world, uh, Jesus is not alarmed by any of it. And we're going to see as we go through the book of Revelation as well, uh, we are reminded and warned that actually the kings of the earth are not our friends as Christ followers. That's not where our hope is supposed to be. We are not supposed to be focused on what government can do, because government is Ultimately, uh, not belonging to Jesus. And that is not to say that there can't be Christians in government who can do good things, but our hope is not there. Our hope has never been there. The governments of this world are in rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And ultimately, Jesus will set it all right, and ultimately, He will bring all rulers under His feet. Uh, but we have not seen that day yet. And so, uh, when we live in a culture where it's very easy to get caught up in politics and have our focus on politics, and And if we can just get the right people elected or if we can just get the right laws passed, then God's kingdom is going to come on earth. I would suggest that that's just not a biblical idea. And that's not to say that, again, Christians can't be there and be light everywhere and share God's word everywhere and be a force for biblical morality everywhere. That's not a bad thing. But that's not where our hope is. Our hope can't be when the government on earth gets right, then the kingdom finally comes. The kingdom will come when Jesus ultimately brings everything under his feet, which will happen as we go through the book of Revelation. Moving on, verse 5, 6, and b. to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So there's a little kind of worship moment here. There's a little uh, a little break to just give some praise to Jesus, and so when that happens in the New Testament, we call that a doxology. And so you've probably heard that term before. Doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory, and logion, which literally means a saying, like a phrase. Uh, but it has the implication of a divine phrase, like an oracle, uh, something spiritual. So not just like a pithy saying, but something powerful is going on in these words. Something spiritual is happening there. And so it literally means a glory saying, or a glory phrase, or a glory word. Uh, But what it really is, is worship. It's a little worship break, and so sometimes if you'll read in the New Testament, you'll see these little breaks happening where Paul will all of a sudden stop teaching and just go into worship mode for a few words, Uh, and some scholars think that these might have even been worship songs, like literally worship lyrics that the early church sang about God and about Jesus, and so there's a number of doxologies that you're going to find throughout the New Testament. Uh, Interestingly, this is the only one that's written just to Jesus. This is the only one written just to Jesus. To him. Uh, often they are written to the Father. Sometimes they're written to the Father and the Son. This is the only one written to Christ alone. And it starts with, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So let's just think about that first phrase for a moment. To him who loves us. To him who loves us. I'll say it again. To him who loves us. And we can talk about God's love and sing about God's love so much that it can be one of those things where it starts to lose its meaning. It just becomes so familiar to us uh, that we just don't even let the weight of that sink in and the weight of that land on us the way that it should to say that you are a person, if you follow after Jesus, you are one that he loves and has freed by his blood. You are loved by God. The most important part of your identity is that you are loved by God that he loves you, that he loves you. He loves you so much that he went to the cross for you. That's how much he loves you. And it's easy just to be, ah, love, 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 right? Sometimes I'll say, Kaylee, I love you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like she's just, sometimes she's not in the mood for it. And it's just, they, they know. They know they're loved. And so it's not that big a deal to hear it over and over and over again. Uh, we shouldn't be doing that with God's love, right? We shouldn't just be, yes, I know he loves me. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, no, like let that sink in fresh again. He loves you. God loves you. When you were yet sinners, Christ loved you and died for you. When you were his enemy, he loved you. And there was nothing that you did to earn that love. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he's God. I use the example that when my children were born, they had my love instantly. They didn't do a single thing to earn it or deserve it. To be honest, they're giving me nothing in that moment. They're just babies. They're taking lots. They're sucking the life out of me in some ways. But they had my love fully and completely. I would have died for them in that moment just because I loved them. They didn't earn anything. They just had my love. They had all of my devotion. They had all of my affection. That is the love of God for you, even in your sin. He doesn't love your sin, but he loves you even in your sin, even when you were enemies, even when you were farthest from God. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrates his own love for us there. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has demonstrated how much he loves us by going to the cross for us. Where the price needed to be paid for disobedience, for our rebellion against God, Jesus stood up and said, out of my love for them, I will pay that price for them. And because of that, you and I are free now. We are set free because of what he has done. We are free from the eternal consequence of our sin. We are free from the shame and the guilt that would bear us down. We're free from our separation from God. We are free from everything that sin was doing in us. We're free from that now. We are free to live out our lives for him. We are free to live rightly and goodly before him because of what he has done. So this worship song begins to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Out of that great love, he has set us free by his own blood that he shed for us. And he's made us into a kingdom that crosses every national boundary, that crosses every ethnicity, that crosses gender, that crosses age, that crosses all things, that he has started his kingdom here on earth, and he has made us into that kingdom. I heard a preacher once say, one of the reasons I know that God is real is that every time I meet another believer for the first time, if I meet a total stranger and I find out they're a believer, there's something where I feel like I've known them my whole life. Like, there is something there. And he's like, I've been in different countries, and you you meet lots of people, and then you find out someone is a believer, and there is just something there that connects. It's that we are all part of the same kingdom. We are all worshiping the same king. So he loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. He's made us into a kingdom that surpasses any earthly kingdom, and he's turned us all into priests. Turn to the person next to you and say, You're a priest. You're a priest. And in the Old Testament, there were priests who ministered in the temple and they ministered on your behalf. You didn't approach God on your own. You couldn't. If you wanted to approach God, you had to go to a priest and the priest would offer an offering and would offer a prayer on your behalf. And if you wanted to hear from God, you had to go find a prophet and the prophet would intercede for God on your behalf in the other direction. There was no direct access. That sounds crazy. And it only sounds crazy because we're so used to it not being that way. One of the things that the blood of Jesus did was open the way that we don't need someone to mediate between us and God anymore. Jesus has done that. And so you don't need me to pray for you. As a pastor, you don't need to go to find someone to hear from God for you. You can boldly go before God's throne yourself. You can pray yourself. You can hear his voice yourself. And that's not to say we shouldn't pray for one another still and help one another discern because we are part of a family, but we don't need a mediator anymore. He has made all of us priests. In the past, the priests were the only ones who could go into the presence of God. Now, all of us have that ability to come before his throne. All of us have the ability to worship him on our own directly with God. He has brought all of us into that place. Last couple of verses. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1, 7 and 8. And so it's all pointing to this. The end of the story, spoiler alert, is Jesus is coming back. We knew that already, and he told us that was going to happen. But that's the end of this story. Jesus is coming back, and he is going to make all things new. He is going to restore and redeem humanity in its entirety. He will deal with death and the devil for good, and he will complete uh, everything that needs to be completed to bring us back fully into what he began back in Eden. So Jesus is coming back. He is coming with the clouds. And as I said earlier, so much of the book of Revelation ties into Old Testament stuff. And so we want to pay attention to what is this saying about the Old Testament. So the first part of these verses, uh, John is quoting Old Testament passages. He's quoting Daniel and he's quoting Zechariah. So look, he is coming with the clouds. Sounds an awful lot like Daniel 7:13, where Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then Zechariah 12:10 talks about they will look on me, the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And so there is some quotation happening here. It's a bit of a mashup of a passage. But John is referring to these two Old Testament verses. And if you ever wondered why uh, sometimes when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, why does it not line up exactly, including even in these verses? Uh, Why is it not like a direct quote? Like if I were going to quote from Daniel right now, it would be a direct quote, and so why doesn't it line up perfectly? Number one, sometimes they're paraphrasing, and and just I will do that too sometimes from the pulpit. Uh, If I say like, hey, no matter what's going on in life, God is going to be on our side and working for our good. Now, that's not a direct quote from Romans chapter 8, but it's the gist of what Romans 8 is saying. So sometimes it's that. Uh, As well, there is a a particular version, a particular interpretation of Scripture called the Septuagint. And it was what they used in the early church. And it was a Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they were often quoting out of the Greek interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so our Bible now is a direct interpretation from the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And so what they were using in the New Testament was Hebrew that had been translated into Greek. And so that's why the wording doesn't always match up perfectly. Certainly the the heart and the gist of it is the same. But John quotes from these two Old Testament passages pointing to the idea that Jesus is coming back. He's coming with the clouds. The New Testament is clear that the first time Jesus came to this earth, it was very much under the radar, right? I'm coming as a baby in this little poor family, in this little poor town. And even when Jesus was in his ministry, he was trying to stay quiet and try to keep things under the radar. But he makes clear that when Jesus comes back the second time, it won't be under the radar at all. Jesus said, it's going to be like lightning that lights up the whole sky that you can see no matter where you are. That's what it's going to be like when I come back the second time. So don't be fooled when little people rise up saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. He's like, there's going to be no mistaking it when I come back the second time. On the clouds of glory, Jesus will return and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and they will mourn because of him. And and that is not us uh, who follow after Jesus who will rejoice in the fact that he is coming back. But it is that for those who uh, will see him, who rejected him, who have continued in rebellion against him, who have, have spurred the gospel and ignored the call to reconciliation, those are the ones who will mourn because they will realize they they had it wrong. They will realize that 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 story that we told them about Jesus Christ was real and he is now coming to judge the earth and they are not where they should be with him. So for some, it will be the greatest day that we could possibly imagine. For some, it will be the most terrifying day that they could possibly imagine. And that is part of the warning of the book of Revelation is that he is coming back. And do we want that to be a day of rejoicing or a day of terror? Come on up, worship team, just about done here. The last phrase that Jesus uses to talk about himself here is, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty and alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And so if we were writing it in English today, we would be saying the phrase probably would have been, I am A to Z, or Z for those who like the American version. I am A to Z. Uh, it's his way of saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the first and I am the last. And of course the suggestion is, and everything in between. Jesus is the complete everything. He is the fullness of everything. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. And because of that, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows how this is all going to work out. We do not need to master the the code of revelation and figure out well what's going to happen when and how are we going to navigate this and what's going to happen and what does that symbol mean and what does that symbol mean that we don't need to worry about that you know why because jesus is the alpha and the omega he knows the end from the beginning he's got it all Figured out. And if Jesus is the fullness of all that there is, if he is A to Z and everything in between, then that also means we don't need to take on more than than we should in terms of the weight that we carry in life, the worry that we carry in life. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He doesn't get scared. He doesn't get worried. He is not alarmed about anything he sees in the world. For everyone who is freaking out about the American election, and what about a cover-up or whatever, you know, who's not worried even a little bit the Alpha and Omega the first and the last he's not concerned He is fully confident in what his plans are for this world, and he is fully confident in his own ability to pull out whatever he wants to pull out in making his plans and purposes happen. And so my job in life isn't to become worrier-in-chief where I take on the responsibility of worrying about everything because when the Alpha and the Omega walked humbly amongst us, he said, hey, the Father knows all of it. You don't worry about any of it. Right? The Father takes care of the animals. He takes care of the plants. He will take care of you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow can worry about itself. You focus on today. That's your job. You worry about today. And we leave the rest to Alpha and Omega, who knows all and is in control of all. So as we have met our authors today, John a little bit, Mostly Jesus, because Jesus is the one really doing the heavy lifting when it comes to revelation. John is dictating or, or receiving the dictation and writing it down. Um, We're going to get to know Jesus really well in this book because this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. And uh, today, no real homework uh, or anything along those lines uh, other than let's let God's word and let's let this revelation spur us on to worship him for who he is, who is and who was and who is to come, the sevenfold spirit before the throne and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the Alpha and the Omega, We worship him today. And so the worship team is going to lead us as we sing his praises this morning. We'll encourage you to join in with us at home. The words will be there on the screen. Please give him the gift. And don't just sing to the screen. Don't just sing the words as you're reading them. Sing this to him. Bring this worship to him this morning because he's worthy of it today.